T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Connecticut Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. Good morning to you. Good morning, Aaron, and thank you for inviting me. Let's start with the public perception of prosecutors versus the reality and their role they play in the criminal justice system. I think the public perception is that we... Our job is to recommend prison sentences or jail sentences to the court that, uh, for people who are arrested by the police, which I think is a very different role than we really have. And in Connecticut versus many other states, prosecutors enter the case a little later, it seems. They do in Connecticut. And the part of that perception is I think the public thinks our, we want to lock everybody up, which is not what we want to do at all. In Connecticut, and I think it might be the only, there might be two other states, I'm not even sure of that. Uh, and the problem's historical, actually. We prosecutors are part of the judicial branch since the American Revolution, the American Revolution from Great Britain, from England. And we were appointed by the judges. We were not a separate agency. When the police made an arrest, when the circuit court was created, the first statewide trial court in Connecticut for misdemeanors, the, the, the low-level trial court, all of the paperwork from the police was filed directly with the clerk's office. The clerk's office created the docket, even created the charging document, the information, it's called the information, that's used to institute criminal proceedings. The docket was prepared and the case was put on the conveyor belt and the case was flowing. The prosecutor under that system asked himself or herself, should I nolly this case? Should I not prosecute this case? Should I take the case off the conveyor belt and, ask the, and, and not prosecute it? In every other state in the country, when the police make an arrest, the paperwork goes to the district attorney's office, which that's what they're called in most states. The district attorney's office then asks the question, should I charge this person with a crime? That question involves two questions. One is, can I, can the case, is there probable cause? Can the case be proven by a reasonable doubt? The second question is, should I prosecute this case? What's in the public interest this case? What's the appropriate outcome? What's the result that will best serve the public interest in this particular case? That question is very different than, should I nolly the case after it's pending? And it's going to lead to different results. Now, that's the question. We do this now. We nolly many cases. In the old days, before there were all the diversionary programs, we used to nolly a, a significant percentage of cases. We would say, I'm not going to prosecute that case. That would often come after two or three or four court appearances when we would make that decision. Now, what we do is, is agree to almost every case when there's appearance, a public defender is appointed, the case is continued several times, and then the defendant applies for a diversionary program. And many of these cases, which would have been nollied on the first day of court, 
end up going into diversionary programs after several court appearances. So it's the police who ultimately decide whether or not someone's going to be arrested and charged. And in some cases, if it's an arrest that occurs overnight or on a weekend, prosecutors might not be getting the arrest information and the charges maybe minutes before they have to go before a judge. Exactly. On cases in which a person is, is arrested and unable to make bond, they're held until the first court appearance, the first court day, which can be on a Monday and a Friday night arrest, although a judge has to review within 48 hours to determine whether it's probable cause. But the case appears on the docket uh, in court. The prosecutor often gets the files and the paperwork half an hour before the court appearance, and maybe along with 10 or 12 or 14 other cases. So the process moves very, very fast without sufficient time or information for the prosecutor to make a really informed decision as to whether or not this case should be prosecuted. Now, almost all of the time, the, the, the police do a very good job. They submit police reports. They, it contains the facts and a description of the crime and the evidence. So it's pretty quickly can be determined, yes, there is probable cause, which is a legal threshold. And often you can look at it and say it's not only probable cause, this looks like a case that we have a reasonable, reasonably likely will result in a conviction, which is a little higher standard than probable cause, but that's the one we really follow in reality in deciding to charge. What we don't get the opportunity to really look at is say, what's this crime all about? What is this person all about? Is there something that might serve the public interest better than prosecution? With regard to low-level crimes, many people are homeless, drug-addicted, mentally ill, have a variety of other things. Many of these people have been through service programs, which they have fallen away from maybe temporarily, that are very good, very capable, very, that might be able to help them, better than putting them in jail, uh, some, may, some better than others. Prosecutors have very little engagement with these local service pro programs that might be available and might reach a better result than prosecution. What we're trying to do and hoping to do, and I'm hoping we do it before I become too old to continue in this job, which is getting close, is get the legislature to recognize that if we're going to have real criminal justice reform in this state, we need to enable, to give prosecutors the ability in some cases, it's a, more resources and not much to be able to make more informed charging decisions. So we, because really the prosecutors in, are, are the people who represent the public. It's a legal system. We have lawyers on both sides and judges. Our role is to represent the public and to seek the outcome in a case which is, benefits the public in general, not the victim, not prosecuting every case in which the police make an arrest, there are many cases in which the police make an arrest that it should be made for legitimate reasons. But that doesn't mean every one of those cases needs to be prosecuted by any means. We have the, we have the ability, the duty really, to decide whether or not a case should be prosecuted, what would, seek the best, what would be the best result for the public. But we need to have a process that enables us to do that, and we need to have a little more, more resources and attention on that threshold question. So if I hear you correctly, we, we've had a number of criminal justice reforms in Connecticut, but it seems most of those have reformed issues farther down the conveyor belt, maybe after conviction, way after the prosecutors have already done their thing. Exactly. 
Exactly. Criminal justice reform is, I, I really think, criminal, and I've been around here for a long time and I've seen the pendulum swing from one, of the, one extreme to the other. Too much of the criminal justice system is driven by emotion. You have a horrible crime and the public has a natural and na- normal reaction to that horrible crime. I can remember in 2007, shortly after I became chief state's attorney, there were horrible murders in in Cheshire. Dr. Pettit's wife and two daughters uh, were murdered and their house was set on fire. It was a horrible crime. The reaction to that on a lot lot of people was we need mandatory minimum sentences. We need to have three strikes and you're outlaws. We even need to make the death penalty uh, more easier to obtain. The prosecutors, and there wasn't much public about that, we, the state's attorney, said, no, we don't need those things. Judges have enough discretion to impose appropriate sentences. What we need is the ability to get information to the decision makers at the time they need it to make their informed decisions. We're in a paper, we were in a paper system, still are. That was 2007. People recognize that. The, 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 the more liberal politicians who tended to be Democrats thought that was a wonderful way to beat the mandatory minimum laws and the three strikes on your outlaws. And they went for that and, and, and thought it was wonderful. Well, it took until about two years ago for us, the Division of Criminal Justice, to get the money to begin to institute an electronic case management system to enable us to do that. We spent a lot of money on a platform, which has improved the judicial branch's ability to get information, improved uh, Office of Policy and Management to get data that that they want to get, improved ability to communicate better between police departments so they can get information to respond together. And the platform's there, and we're just now about to get the ability for us prosecutors to receive police reports and witness statements and photographs and digital information I mean, photographs and, and, and videos and audio recordings to get that electronically and be able to review it early on to make our decisions and then to let it be, uh, uh, to let us inform defense attorneys, disclose evidence to defense attorneys that they need to do that. We're just on the verge of getting that. I hope if we can sustain this uh, criminal justice information system in the next few years, and I worry about that very much with the state budget and with the tendency of the legislature to forget about reform when a crisis is over. Will that do the trick in terms of giving prosecutors more discretion, or is there more beyond that that needs to change legislatively or or maybe even with the state constitution? What would you like to see done? I don't think we need a lot to change things legislatively. We need, if we can focus, I don't think we're going to have real criminal justice reform in the state of Connecticut until we focus a bit more on, on what the true role of the prosecutor is in Connecticut and in other states and recognize that prosecutors in Connecticut are really far more conscientious than the public is aware and far less inclined to lock everybody up than the public is aware, although we do on serious crimes we need to. I've prosecuted many serious crimes in, in, over my career, and, and the objective was that some of these people need to be incarcerated maybe for the rest of their lives. But for the most part, that's a very small percentage of the criminal cases that come into the court every day. Uh, We need to be able to focus more on the charging function of the prosecutor, the resources uh, that can enable uh, enable the prosecutor to say we can accomplish the the public need, fill the public 
objective here on a particular case with appropriate action other than prosecution. And if we can work out that kind of reform, I think that's the only way we'll get true criminal justice justice reform in Connecticut. In many other states, you have a DA who is elected. In Connecticut, that's not the case. How much of that plays into maybe a, a misperception that the public has about the role of prosecutors? I think that plays a large part. It does play a large part in, 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 the, in the public's perception. We're not public. In one way, the system is wonderful in Connecticut. And I've gone to meetings all around the state, country. I've met with district attorneys and people from, from other states, and they're very fine. But one of the best things in Connecticut is we have prosecutors whose job is to swore, were sworn to uphold the law and do justice. And we're not subject to the vagaries of public opinion. We're not subject to the emotional reaction that is normal when you have a serious crime. We're more able and we're less pressured. We're removed from the pressure to react to that emotion. And we have a better, I think a much better system where we uh, have a duty to sit down and say, okay, what's right and just and fair and proper with this case? without being subject to the vagaries of, uh, of, of the natural human emotions to crimes. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Connecticut Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. It's been almost a year since you penned an op-ed piece about perhaps some of the unintended consequences of juvenile justice reforms. And it seems since then there's been more of the same. Almost every day we hear about a story in the news with juveniles burglarizing cars, sometimes stealing them, sometimes getting into crashes as they try to avoid capture. What are you hearing from your prosecutors around the state about what's, what's going on? Well, it's not just the prosecutors, it's the police and it's the public too, that, that the problem has gotten worse, not better. One of the problems we have is, as I said, we are still basically functioning in paper in the Division of Criminal Justice because we haven't had, we don't have a good digital information system, but we are on the verge of getting it. So we don't have these figures that come from other places. But in, just in, as an example, in Manchester, there was a three-month period ending this spring uh, where they compared the, the auto thefts this year from last year. There had been a 76% increase. In the same period in Bloomfield, there had been a uh, 109% increase in auto thefts. In the same period in East Hartford, there had been a 32% increase over the year before. And this was uh, approximately nine months after I wrote that op-ed last summer. So the situation's gotten worse. It's also gotten worse, and the focus of that article I read, which is, is true, we have done wonderful reforms. The second chance, the idea of the second chance society, the idea of raise the age, uh, the idea of reducing the number of juveniles who are referred to juvenile court is a terrific idea. And we have done an awful lot. Our key juvenile prosecutor, Fran Carino, who is our supervisory juvenile prosecutor, has worked all around the states with many towns setting up uh, uh, juvenile review boards, which the police can take a case to, to the review board. And other, instead of referring it to the juvenile court, the juvenile review board can work with that youngster and work with the public and the services available in the public and the parents and finds other alternatives to arrest. So we've reduced the number of cases coming in for a variety of reasons to the juvenile court, and that's been wonderful. The problem is these form reforms have taken away almost completely the ability of judges, juvenile judges, to deal appropriately 
with serious repetitive criminal behavior. Uh, and on top of that, we've closed the juvenile detention center, which is the only real s- secure facility uh, to hold some of these repetitive kids who need services badly uh, in a situation where they can get those services and secure them to protect themselves and others. These car theft cases, people talk about, ah, it's only stealing cars, it's only stealing cars. Well, a number of these, and they're tragic, they all end up, they end up in tragic cases. A number of these kids get thrilled, a thrill out of stealing a car and driving it and then fleeing from the police if chased. Most police departments have very good chase policies. Uh, they, they do not chase. That becomes known more, which increases the, uh, the awareness of these kids because a lot of them are very, they're, they're not stupid by any means. They're enterprising and they're smart, and, and, and in a lot of ways, they have a lot of potential. But being young kids, they do things like that and they flee and then end up killing somebody, a pedestrian, killing another occupant of a vehicle, killing their own friends who are with them or themselves and risking the lives of people and police officers, too, and their behavior. And those are tragedies, and many of these kids do it repetitively. That youngster that I wrote about last summer and described, he was held for a while in the juvenile training school and was getting services and was helping. He was released. Within two weeks of his release, he stole another car and was in a high-speed chase driving down 91. So there are a small number of kids who really need to we need, really need to be detained by the police at the time until they can be held in court, and then the court really needs the ability to hold them in a secure, a real secure facility where they can get the services they need, and we need to put a lot of work on that because how do you stop a kid who loves stealing cars and wants to go out and someday is going to grow up and not want to do that anymore? But some of these kids are, are need an awful lot of of uh, help and and intelligence that we don't have as to how to reform these kids and protect them from themselves and protect the public from them. In some cases, is it the kids knowing that, you know, if I get caught, I'm going to get a slap on the wrist and I'll be out and I can do this again? There absolutely is a lot of that. There are kids, and we hear repeatedly, they know what's going to happen to me in juvenile court. I'll be in there for a little while and I'll get out. I won't be held. And they know that, and they know that now. Uh, Also, we have situations where older young people, 18, 19, 20, are driving younger kids around and letting them out in neighborhoods, telling them to go look through cars, uh, you know, find cars, and if they're open, steal whatever's in the car. If the key's in them, steal the car. And they do that because they know the younger kids will not get caught. We've had cases around the state often uh, where older kids are having younger kids hold guns, uh, which are then used because the younger kids, they'll get referred to juvenile court, and, and that's well known. Now, don't get me wrong, most kids, even most kids who get in, in trouble and who break the law, don't need that, they need services and they, they don't need to be incarcerated. Uh, but there are a small number of, uh, of, of youngsters who really need more than that and need a secure facility. One of the things that's happened when the juvenile training center, juvenile training school is closed, and I'd like to ask me ask me some questions about that, and I give you some answers. But when they close the juvenile training school, uh, the only alternative is to put them in uh, private facilities, which are what's called a staff secure facility. Uh, they're no, they're not like uh, the juvenile training school where there were locked doors and, and kind of like and, a prison. Which, yeah, uh, they were staff secure, which meant don't go home, don't leave, <laughs> and the kids could walk away. 
we're finding that when they are placed in facilities like that, there's a number of them who go there and almost immediately they leave and they steal the employees' cars when they go or steal cars in the neighborhood when they go. So there are a lot of facilities that don't want to take kids with certain histories who have committed certain crimes. And we're finding that, uh, I think we had an incident, uh, there's a school in Rhode Island a little while ago where we thought would be a good place, but they don't want to take kids with, with a history of car theft and, and, and uh, uh, running away. And you really need secure facilities. What the legislature decided to do, and I can't understand this for the mind, the juvenile training center was, it had a school on the grounds, it had a lot of potential for being a usable facility that was really secure in a, in, in a good way. That's closed. Uh, a lot of the, what you hear was John Rowland built it, so it was no good, we got to close it. I don't know if that's what drove, that's maybe part of what drove it. The other is a human, natural, you don't really want to lock kids up. I mean, it seems like a horrible thing to do to lock kids up. Uh, and you, we react against that. Why are we doing that? So, of course, and we need to get away from that with most kids, but we need to have the ability for the system to be able to securely confine certain kids while they get the services so that they won't hurt themselves or hurt others. Now, how do you do that? Right now, we've gotten into a trend. Well, now the the the... the, the obligation to do that has been made a judicial branch function. Why it should be a judicial branch function instead of an executive branch function, I'll never understand. Although there's murder minds in mind that moat, but it doesn't seem to be a judicial function. Nevertheless, it has become that. The juvenile branch is in the process of trying to find private facilities to hold these kids. But that really, we've had experience around the country with privatized prisons. And that really hasn't worked out very well for a variety of reasons. I don't know that anybody's thought really whether or not we want to do that, but they need what they call hard, hard security, hard secure facilities, not staff secure facilities, to house some of these youngsters. And In our final 90 seconds or so, number one, would you say that hard facilities like that act as a deterrent for some kids? Some of them do, yes. Just listening to the kids, when they know nothing's going to happen to them, they, they, and, and they, many of them talk about it, laugh about it. Nothing's going to happen to them. We need the ability to do a couple of things, and they don't have to be severe. We need the ability to impose some sanctions and make some kids realize that they have to, they will be sanctions that will quickly be imposed and accountable. If, and it needs to be reasonably quick, and it doesn't have to be severe to do that, to make them question it. Uh, we also need the ability to hold kids who won't learn for longer. Somehow we have to figure that solution out and to do it properly and fairly and humanely. Is part of the solution giving judges more leeway to maybe kick a case up to adult course if they feel it's necessary? Yes, it is. There's been a serious problem with the change in the transfer laws. Now, under the law as it is now, we have to prove that transfer to the adult court is in the best interest of the public and the child. Now, when can it ever be in the best interest of the child? Ironically, we have been able to get, since they closed the juvenile training center, we have been able to get more cases transferred because there's no alternative to protect the public. And you can't do that. And there's no alternative to protect the kids. So we are getting an increased number of transfers because there's no place a juvenile court can put these kids. Now, that's too bad because when they come to adult court, unless they're held by youthful offenders, they're going to get a criminal record. 
the juvenile facility and the juvenile court really is focused on helping the child, helping the child develop. And for us to be able to, for us to have to, for the court to have to say, now we have no sufficient secure place to put this youngster, we're going to have to transfer him to the adult court. That doesn't make sense. He is Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. We could continue this conversation for another two shows. We should have you back, sir. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating, su- I mean, it's a really deep and important subject that there is not an easy solution to. And it tends to be emotional just because of the way we've talked. You don't want to hurt kids. We will have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Face Connecticut. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. I'm Aaron Kupek. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.